You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to John's Gospel. Chapter 12, we'll begin reading with verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus was found, and Jesus found, I'm sorry, a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Heavenly Father, we do look to you this morning that you would be pleased, O Father, to instruct us, that you'd be pleased, O Father, to raise our hearts, O Father, to heaven, that we may find ourselves being instructed by you, O Father, that we may find our hearts in the hands of the Holy Spirit, that he may teach us, that he may reveal things to us that need revealed. He may search our hearts and know them. He may reveal our hidden faults. He may perform his spiritual surgery upon our hearts. That he may be pleased, O Father, that you may be pleased, O Son, that you may be pleased to edify us, to make us more and more like our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, for your glory we pray. Amen. Amen. It would be um, hard to overestimate the significance of the story that we come to this morning. And we don't follow a church calendar here at Tri-State Community Church per se. Uh, But that having been said, we do have a few Sundays on the calendar uh, that we do reserve for certain things. And the Sunday that we call and has historically been called Palm Sunday is one of those Sundays. Uh, again, it would be hard to overestimate the significance of this event. And I think one clue that's given to us is the fact that all four gospel writers include a record of this event. And off the top of my head, I can only think of one other event uh, like that, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. So that should instruct us right there of just how important this event is. And I will confess this week, I really spent a lot of time, I think I spent maybe half as much time trying to determine which gospel writer I was going to follow this morning. I had mixed emotions about going, we've been studying the gospel of John, and I had mixed emotions about jumping ahead. When you're watching a series, who wants to jump ahead? You know, you want to watch the series as it goes. Uh, and I, I, I had a, like, oh Lord, do we want to, do we, do we want to let this one out of the bag? Because there's a lot of things here that 
that we're, we're starting to develop as we go through John's gospel. And I don't want to give them all up this morning so that we can still stay on the edge of our seats. Uh, but as I continued to pray, it seemed pretty clear that just go to John 12. Um, but again, because every, each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all record this event. Um, let's get in. Let's take a look. I want to say a few words uh, uh, by way of explanation and then make some application of this great text. Uh, the words of, ex- uh, of explanation will lead to uh, the significance of this so that we all leave here this morning appraised afresh of the significance of what's taking place here. So let's dig in, starting with verse 12. We have the the words, the next day. The next day. Now, of course, that's in reference to a comment that's been made previously. And if you look up to uh, John 12 and verse 1, you notice six days before the Passover. Uh, There's the time reference that the next day is uh, is, uh, parked next to, if you will. And six days before the Passover, there's been a lot of ink spilled over uh, how this is to be uh, computed. And to go into some of those arguments and stuff, I don't think you would find that the most edifying exercise there is. So I will spare you of much of that. Uh, But in all likelihood, uh, the Passover really begins properly at um, on the evening of Friday, uh, right at sundown. So if we do the math from there, if you just work backwards from Friday evening, then you would have Thursday, then Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, Sunday, Saturday. So uh, the events that's taking place in verse 1 is on Saturday, would be the Sabbath day. So with that in mind, when we come down to verse 12, the next day would be Sunday. And thence we have what has historically been called Palm Sunday. Now, that's just, I thought many of you want to know how we have arrived at that. That's historically how that's been arrived at. And you'll notice that there's a large crowd that had come to the feast. What feast? Again, verse 1, the feast of Passover. We've been in John chapter 7, and there we've been at the, at the feast of booths, if you will, uh, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And I've made a lot of noise about the fact that this is approximately six months before Jesus would go to the cross at the Passover feast. Uh, The Feast of Booths is taking place typically late September, early October. Passover uh, coincides with our Easter, late March, early April. So this is the time frame. And what we see here Beginning in John's, in John's gospel, uh, Jesus is here. He's entering into what we call Passion Week. And Jerusalem has swelled up with uh, uh, a whole bunch of pilgrims. Uh, Passover is one of the feasts that required all Jewish males to return back to Jerusalem, to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So the population of Jerusalem uh, swells massively uh, during Passover. And just a little bit of a background uh, here to try to understand the temperament of this hour. Anytime you have a large group of people coming into uh, a, uh, a vicinity, it always creates some uh, nervousness on part of the leaders. That's always the case. But especially when you add to that the dynamic that Jesus is bringing, 
this is a this is indeed a very um, uh, uh, tumultuous uh, moment, if you will. It's a moment that's really set on edge uh, for many reasons. Now, here we see in verse 12, there's a large crowd. They've come to the Passover, and they hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. We'll say more about that in a moment. I'm just going to follow the narrative as it goes. They hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. How do they hear? Jesus is making his way on the eastern side of Jerusalem. He's coming down the Mount of Olives. He's coming from Bethany down the Mount of Olives. They hear he's coming, so they rush out on the hillside. And verse 13 says they took branches of palm trees. And most of us know, practically I imagine all of us know, that's where the palm part of Palm Sunday comes from. Uh, I can remember as a, a child, uh, you, you, you know this day, you know this Sunday. I have great memories, actually, uh, as a child. This is the day that they, you know, they, they didn't just hand you a, a bulletin when you got to church. They handed you a palm branch, too. So you had this palm branch to, uh, to swing around, you know, and some of a... Uh, uh, some of uh, the folks, uh, the youngsters that I went to church with when I was a youngster uh, knew how to make those fancy crosses. You ever see people fold the things up into a... I never knew how to do that. Mine never looked very well. Mine ended up getting thrown away before anyone saw it. Uh, but uh, there were some girls that could just make that look so neat. and So it's a wonderful time. And what I'm alluding to is what is, what is symbolized by the palm branch? It's joy for sure is one of the things, and I think it's worthwhile for us to turn there. If you keep your place in John 12, and you turn back to Leviticus, Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, uh, God is giving instruction to Moses and how these feasts are, when they're to happen and how they're to be conducted. And if you look at Leviticus 23 and verse 40, You'll note this about the Feast of Booths. That is the feast that we've been uh, looking at. That's back in John chapter 7, if you will. Uh, The Feast of Booths, in verse 40, we're told, was to be conducted this way. You shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and Willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Now, uh, if, you, if, if we as a people had a history of this, of every year coming to the Feast of Booths and taking these branches and using these branches and waving these branches uh, in the midst of the joy of the Feast of Booths, because the Feast of the Booths was meant to be a joyous occasion, uh, what would that palm branch come to symbolize? What would it come to express? It would certainly come to express joy, wouldn't it? It'd be an expression of great joy, waving this palm branch. And I'm happy to say that that to me, when I think of palm branches, probably because of all of those Palm Sundays that I attended as a child, it's joyous. I mean, I'm also someone who really likes spring. I like Palm Sunday. I like Easter. It's one of my favorite times of the year. And we're starting to see life You know, I mean, some of us might not be happy about all the life. We're starting to see some clumps in the yard that means that uh, the lawnmowers are going to be getting powered up soon. But nevertheless, we're going to start to see leaves budding on the trees. We're going to start to see uh, all of these things. Having been down south, we've already seen it. You know, it's already, they're mowing grass in South Carolina. Uh, We didn't actually see them, but we we see that we saw lawns that were fleshly cut. So uh, it's a wonderful time. 
And these palm branches, you know, part of the heritage, if we were ancient Israelites, part of our heritage, uh, when we thought of the palm branch, we would think of joy. But like many symbols, over the years, they began to take on other things. And uh, some of you may be aware that in the intertestamental period, now what do I mean by intertestamental? I mean between Malachi and Matthew. You know, between those books, there's about 400 years, approximately 400 years of time goes by. And approximately halfway in between that time, uh, the Jewish people found themselves uh, greatly oppressed. Uh, Alexander the Great comes in, he conquers the known world, and if we were all military students, we would know that name, Alexander the Great, quite well, because we'd be studying that one of the greatest generals who ever walked the planet. He conquered the world at a very young age. He did it swiftly, he did it quickly, he did it mightily. But he dies at a very young age. And his governors take over his dynasty, over his kingdom. And one of the things that Alexander the Great was doing was he was Hellenizing. Maybe some of you have heard that word, Hellenization. If you, I, I bring that word up because if you're reading literature about this period of time, you're going to come across this word, Hellenization. You're going to think, what is Hellenization? Helen is simply a word for Greek. And to Hellenize something is to bring Greek culture to it. And that's one of the things that Alexander the Great is doing. He is bringing Greek culture to his um, conquered lands. And this effort uh, becomes very tyrannical and oppressive to the Jewish people, so much so that eventually they become persecuted to the degree that they're prohibited from worshiping in the tabernacle or worshiping in the temple, if you will, and offering sacrifices there. There's even an ancient uh, ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, who goes as far as to desecrate the temple by offering a swine on its altar. Now, this leads to a revolt known as the Maccabean Revolt. Some of you will be familiar with uh, Judas Maccabeus, if you will. Uh, this revolt is successful. And in 164 B.C., they go in, they reconsecrate the temple, and they reinstate the worship. And during that service, during that ceremony, during that celebration, they bring in palm branches. And they wave palm branches. And now, the palm branch is not simply a symbol of joy, but it also takes on a symbol of nationalism, Jewish nationalism, or patriotism, if you will. So, uh, I, I, back to John 12, I bring this to your attention because when we see these palm branches, we need to have all of these parts uh, moving to understand just what is taking place. This crowd hears that Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives, and they take these branches, these palm branches, which are emblems of both joy and Jewish nationalism, and they run up on the hill to meet him, and notice what they're crying out in verse 13. They cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, where is all that coming from? Well, a part of it is coming from Psalm 118, which I asked you to keep your place in. If you take a look at Psalm 118 this morning, this is why we use this as our call to worship. And if you look at verse 25, 
Uh, you'll see what's going on. And by the way, Psalm 118 is the last of what is known as the Hallel Psalms. Some of you be familiar with that. They're the Psalms of praise. They're Psalms that are sung, Psalm 113 through 118 are sung at these festivals. It's probably beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus sang Psalm 118 uh, just before uh, when, he, when he celebrated the Passover, uh, the night that he would be uh, arrested and taken away. He probably the very last thing that Jesus sang was Psalm 118. Uh, so uh, the, the psalm is also uh, a messianic psalm. It's used throughout the New Testament by the gospel writers, uh, and it's a, a messianic psalm. And in verse 25, you see the words, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now we'll start to see where some of that's coming from. Some of uh, what did these people, these pilgrims who are in Jerusalem, are running up on the side of the hill. They run up to meet Jesus and they're saying, Hosanna. Now where is the Hosanna coming from? Verse 25, see the word save us? Uh, in the original, it's Ana Yahweh Hosanna. That's the, for, that's the words. Now, you know these words. Let's set them not aside, but think of Yahweh. You know Yahweh, right? In fact, you already know that because Lord is all capitalized here, isn't it? But listen carefully to Hosiana. What's that sound like? It sounds like Hosanna, doesn't it? That's what it is. And what's Hosanna mean? Psalm 118 tells us it means save us. We, save us, we pray, or save now. Save, we pray, or save us, or save now. What are they doing? They're running up on the hillside saying, Hosanna. And they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What, what, what is happening? Well, they make it even clearer when they add even the king of Israel. So what are they saying? What are they doing? They get word that Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives. So they grab their palm branches, and out up the hill they go, uh, chanting these words from this messianic psalm, and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. What are they doing? They're coronating their king. Now, we've been studying John's gospel. And some of us might be saying, you know what? That isn't the first time they've attempted to do this. No, they, they attempted. They, didn't they try? Seems to me that they tried to do this in John chapter 6, didn't they? Yes. Remember, Jesus feeds them, and they eat, and they get their bellies filled, and they try to make him king by force, right? And what does Jesus do? He wiggles right out of there, doesn't he? No. So one of the things, back to John chapter 12, that's going on here is that this massive crowd is running up on the hillside and they're coronating Jesus as their king. Now that is hardly the most significant thing that's taking place here. What's most significant here is not what the crowds do, it's what Jesus does. And by the way, when you're studying your Bible, that's always the case. We have a tendency to get those backwards. What's most significant is not what we do. 
It's what Jesus does. What's significant here, what's most significant here, is Jesus isn't wiggling out of this. No, what does Jesus do? We're told in verse 14 that he finds a young donkey and he sits on it. And the other gospel writers flesh that out for us. No, Jesus has done more than just find a donkey that happened to be around. He sent two of his disciples off to get, to fetch a donkey for this purpose. A donkey that had never been ridden on. And there's lots of details about that. We can look at it another time. But for our purpose, Jesus has made these arrangements. And this donkey is brought. And Jesus gets on this donkey. And he begins to ride down into Jerusalem, just as is written, verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, this quote from the Old Testament is a, it's a, a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, citations mixed together, as the uh, New Testament authors often do. Uh, they'll fetch a couple sediments from a few different places and put them together. That's common parlance for the gospel writers. Uh, the fear not probably comes from a couple of different passages in Isaiah, but the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's call, comes from Zechariah 9, 9, which is another messianic prophecy, prophesying of the one who is to come, prophesying of the Messiah, prophesying of the Messiah king. Now, what is most significant about here isn't the fact that these folks are running up to coronate Jesus as king. What's most significant here is that Jesus is acknowledging your right. I am the king. I am he. I am is riding into Jerusalem. The great I am is seated upon this animal traveling down the Mount of Olives into the city of the Holy One. Fully, conscientiously acknowledging this. It's a claim to be none other than God himself. And the fact that he's riding, we should be so thankful this morning that he's riding on a donkey's colt. Why? Because if he would have been on a war horse, we would have been in trouble. But the fact, when kings in times of peace, they rode these donkeys. They rode these animals in times of peace. Here comes the king of the the sovereign one of the universe, and he comes humbly, seated upon a cult. He comes to make peace. That's the significance of what we call Palm Sunday. Verse 16, we, you know, we, we might ask even before we read verse 16, did they get this? Well, verse 16 uh, clears that up. No, they didn't understand these things. Not at first. As so often these truths and so often these, uh, these various things that Jesus is revealing, they don't get it at first. Neither would we. Uh, they don't get it at first. There's reasons for that. But they don't get it at first. But when Jesus was glorified after he had gone to the cross, uh, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So do they understand all this as it's happening? No. Would we have understood all these things as it happened? No. Now notice verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Okay, so there's a crowd present. 
There's a crowd present that had been with Jesus when he raised Lazarus out of the dead, out of the tomb, if you will. Now that story in, in, in John chapter 11, uh, Jesus' good friend Lazarus dies. He's buried. He's in the tomb for four days. Jesus shows up. He orders the stone to be rolled away, and he commands him, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out in his burial cloths. Now, we can only imagine uh, what kind of fanfare that created. We can only imagine how the headlines read uh, uh, after that event. Uh, many people were coming to Bethany to see Lazarus, who's been ra raised from the dead, and in hopes of seeing Jesus. So this creates a crowd, if you will. And this crowd is congregating in Bethany, and this crowd is following Jesus as he comes down the Mount of Olives. Now, word is spreading, spreading down into Jerusalem, spreading to the pilgrims who are coming into Jerusalem. They hear about this, so the crowds come out. If you look at verse 18, the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. They hear that he had done this sign. They rush up on the side of the hill to meet Jesus, and these two crowds and Jesus converge, and the former crowd, or the latter crowd, rather, uh, turns around, and it becomes like a parade. It becomes like a procession coming down uh, the Mount of Olives. Now, notice in verse 18, John is doing something that he does often, and I've pointed it out. John says the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. We've read this kind of stuff before, haven't we? When Jesus is in uh, Jerusalem three years earlier at the Passover, we're told that many believed in him because he had done all these, what, signs. And their faith turned out to be spurious, didn't it? It turned out to be short of the real deal of true saving faith. And of course, this is going to turn out to be the same. What is going on with the crowds? Why are they, why are they wanting to coronate Jesus? Well, what the crowds really want is liberation from Rome. What they're really after is to be liberated from Roman oppression. And the logic is simple. Here, here's a guy that can feed us with a couple fish and some bread. And here's a guy that can perform all these miracles everywhere. And here's a guy that can even raise someone from the dead who's been in the tomb for four days. Certainly, he can take care of the Romans. Let's make him king. And that's why they're running up on the hill to meet with Jesus. That's their agenda. Now, well, how do we make an application of that? I think we're at an hour right now where we really need this lesson. They're calling Jesus their king while they're electing him to be their king. It's similar to what we do with presidents, if you will. But <laughs> here's the difference. Jesus is not running for office. He's not running for office. He hasn't been campaigning. He's been revealing. He is king. And what's going on is they're coming up and they're they're coronating Jesus to be their king so that he can carry out their thing. Instead of running up on the side of the hill and declaring his 
himself their king so they can submit and surrender and be servants of his thing. You follow what I'm talking about? In other words, they're coronating Jesus to be king of their agenda. They're not surrendering to his lordship to be servants of his agenda. Now, what happens in a couple of days when they discover he's not the king that they're looking for? They're looking for a liberator from Rome, and when Jesus shows them that he's not the guy they're looking for, what do they do? This is always the case with Spurious faith. When we, when we craft an idol of Jesus and we make Jesus into the genie in the bottle that we want him to be, what happens when he doesn't come through for us? Then we reject him. And that's what happens. And that's why many of the people that are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even King of Israel will yell, crucify him in just a couple of days. Now, what is the application? This is an old, ancient story. Does it have anything to do with us in the 21st century America? Oh, my. Does it ever have everything to do with us? Because we're living in a day now where there's a lot of Jesuses around in our culture, especially in the political realm. You know, I, I always like talking to folks who are international folks. I love to talk to international folks. And, and um, I have a... Uh, an article that was written a year ago, November, uh, by a, um, a New Testament scholar, an Australian New Testament scholar. And he, he writes, he says, not long ago, I found myself in an American hotel room channel surfing America's political news circus. When I came across two programs featuring religious leaders passionately discoursing about President Trump and America. As a clergyman from Australia, I was naturally interested in the perspectives of my religious peers. I was particularly captured by how the two speakers in parallel programs used intensely religious language, how they invoked God, how they quoted their Bible, and the way they mentioned a whole pantheon of religious themes. But their political convictions could not have been more disparate. He's watching the TV, isn't he? It was a surreal experience, he says. <laughs> a surreal experience, like simultaneously living in two alternate realities and seeing how Christianity was being weaponized. Weaponized by both the right and the left of American politics. You want to hear more of this? <laughs> <laughs> That's so insightful. As a scholar of the New Testament and a professing Christian, I simply do not rec recognize the plethora of American, quote, Jesuses, end of quote, spawned by the political left and right. What I see is neither the Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the one I know from history, nor the Christ of faith that I know from my church. <laughs> to begin with, I'm not remotely convinced by the Jesus of American conservative culture, a Jesus who sounds like a deified version of Ronald Reagan, a Jesus who believes that God helps those who help themselves, a Jesus who rejects biological evolution but ostensibly believes in an economic contest of survival of the fittest. Then among progressives, their Jesus is often described in ways that would probably be best fit for the long-lost love child of Lenin and Lady Gaga. 
I wasn't sure I was going to read that or not, but I already did. I was just caught up in it and reading. And, uh, I have to read it again to get the context to continue on. I'll start with the long-lost love child of Lenin and Lady Gaga, who grew up to become an Antifa activist. The industry of progressive politics trades in a secular Jesus sanitized of anything that sounds too religious. Our Australian friends quite insightful in terms of the circus that we find ourselves in today. Um, listen, a false Jesus equals a false gospel. A false Jesus is not going to add up to a false gospel. If you want to put it in mathematical equations, false Jesus equals false gospel. If we're going to have the true gospel, we must have the star of the true gospel, the true Christ Jesus. There's no way around that. And um, Americans are busy running up on the side of the hill shouting their hosannas. And I wonder if we're busy with them. Are we on the side of that hill shouting our hosannas, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even King of America? As we use Jesus and we weaponize Christianity to bolster our own political views, could it be possible I, I submit that it is more than possible. It's actively going on on a large scale. And it's idolatry. And it can't save. I got three points that I'll share with you really quickly. I guess we're supposed to have three points, and right? I mean, you're supposed to have three points. I got three points. Um, first, in, in, in analyzing all this, I mean, Jesus and his kingdom must both inform our views, our political views, our social views, our humanitarian views, all of our views, our world views. We can't be taking the views that we're passionate about and running up on the side of the hill and coronating Jesus to carry out our views and using Jesus as a uh, really as a, a, credit, a, a credit authority, if you will, or a proof text to what we want to do. That's idolatry. That's creating a false Jesus. A Jesus who looks more like Ronald Reagan than the Jesus is offered to us in the New Testament. A Jesus who helps those who help themselves. Most people believe that's a Bible verse, by the way. If you ask people, they think that's a Bible verse. Lots of reasons for that. It's a story for another day. But what about a secular Jesus who is to use uh, our Australian friends, quote, a secular Jesus who's washed of everything that sounds religious? They're both, you know, so they both have this in common. The common denominator between the two is crafting their own Jesus. We have to instead um, come to Jesus and seek Jesus and his kingdom to inform and to even challenge our views, our political views. I'm not saying we shouldn't have political views. 
I'm not saying we shouldn't have social views. I'm not saying some people will err that way and say, we don't have any business being involved in any of that. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying don't run up on the hill and rubber stamp Jesus on your agenda or my agenda. We run up on the side of that hill and we fall down at Jesus' feet in order to be shaped and molded into his agenda. The gospel informs all of these questions whether they be immigration, whether they be money, whether they be it, the gospel informs all of these things. Secondly, our views and agendas must be laid at the feet of Jesus, which I've already said, and we must surrender our views and agendas for the views of Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus is not really our king. Do you realize that when we do this, when we come up with our agenda, and we ask Jesus to carry out our agenda. We're actually ordering Jesus around. Jesus becomes our servant boy. And you know, some of us say, well, that sounds really disrespectful. That's because it is really disrespectful. That's exactly what it is. We're not king. Now, some of this is really, it's really sewn into the fabric of the United States. How does our declaration begin? Say it out loud. We the people. There's a fundamental problem right there. It's often pointed out. People don't like to say that much anymore, but we the people march up on the side of this hill and we coronate Jesus to carry out our views. It's what we're doing. No, we need to submit to him. We need to fall down. It's one of the reasons the church has so lost its voice. It sounds just like the rest of the world. So who wants to come and sit here and listen to me all morning? Well, today you couldn't be out golfing, but you could be doing something else. If we're going to be just like the world, there's no reason to come here. But if we're going to be the church, there's every reason to come here. In fact, it would be sinful to stay away. So it's dishonoring to coronate Jesus and ask him to be king of our wishes. That makes him a servant. And the last thing I want to say is we've got to keep the gospel first. We've got to keep the gospel first. It's hard to be deeply passionate about more than one thing. And if we're spending a lot of our time watching whatever station it might be, whether it be Newsmax or it be Fox or it be MSNBC or CNN, it makes no difference. In fact, if you watch those stations, there's one thing that you'll find, I don't care which one you watch, you're going to find that you come away angry. You ever notice that? You often come away angry. Well, one of the reasons for that is, and, and by saying this, I'm not saying that these people are not passionate about the United States or that they don't love the United States or they're not passionate about what they believe and what they're arguing for. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is there's this thing called ratings. And the higher the ratings get, the more these folks make. And do you realize how wealthy some of these talking heads that are on TV are? They're horrible theologians, by the way. They're awful theologians. But they're making a lot of money keeping everybody upset. Because there's this thing called ratings. One of the things, you ever wonder why about every station or every TV program is a drama? It's because people love that stuff. And they've turned the news into a drama. 
Albert Moeller said a couple of years ago, there's not enough news going on for a 24-hour news program. So what do you do? You take the same news over and over again, you formulate and fashion it into a drama narrative, and you get people watching. I'm not saying don't watch these guys, but if you're spending more time watching your favorite talking head than you are in your Bible, you're being indoctrinated by your favorite talking head and not by the Bible. And you're getting a lot of really bad theology. And you're probably mad most of the time. Yeah. Um, so much more could be said. It's probably a good place to wrap it up right there. But let me just say this in closing. If we're indoctrinating ourselves behind our favorite talking head, that's probably what we're talking about as we go through the, um, the course of our day. That might be the posts that we like. That might be the Facebook things that some send out. I personally don't um, like Facebook very much. Our church uses it, obviously, but I don't care for it. I don't post things. Um, it's an awful arena to try to have any kind of discourse. Um, but you can. it's hard to be deeply passionate about more than one thing. And if we're passionate about those agendas, we're going to be less passionate about the gospel. And one thing that I know, I mean, I talk politics, and I, I, I talk politics with certain people, but only certain people. Now, there was a guy at the courthouse who I really got to know towards the end. Maggie knows who he is. And I talk with politics with him all the time, but we were really on the same page in many things. And really, if I wanted to talk with him, that was a way I could go about it. And I would try to give him some gospel principles as we're going on about it. But the gospel has to be first. So many times what you'll find happening is as we immerse ourselves in this political service, circus, if you will, the gospel takes a back seat. And now we're not as zealous about, about advancing Christ and his kingdom as we are about advancing a political candidate or a political ideology. Do we think for a moment that any of those things can save us or solve our problems? You know, the Ligonier conference was going on last week. Donald gave us a heads up, and we listened to a lot of it while we were in the car. And I heard Derek Thomas say this, Listen, presidents come. And presidents go. And that's the truth, isn't it? Not saying that they're not important. They can do a lot of damage while they're in, but that's the fact of the matter. They come and they go. They come and they go. Christ is a king who is permanent. Right? Let's keep the gospel first. Let's let Jesus and his kingdom inform and challenge our views. Let's have our views and our agendas laid at the feet of Jesus. Let's keep the gospel first. Heavenly Father, we so thank you, Father, for your forgiveness. Uh, I will confess that I've been guilty of following to the left and to the right of this one so many, many times, as is the case with everything I stand up here and preach. No, oh, Father, you know our hearts. You know our waywardness. You know uh, our hidden things. Oh, Father, we so thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ Jesus. For as Jesus comes down that hill, as we will, as we will study next week and look next week, he gives his life on the cross and dies in the place of us for our sins, to cleanse us from every sin that we've committed, to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to cleanse us from the filth and stain of sin, and to make us and fashion us into newness of life and life that is uh, in the likeness of him. Oh, Father, we thank you for this good news. We thank you, oh, Father, 
that you have blessed us so abundantly in Christ Jesus. And we pray, Father, you'll hear our confession. As we go forth from this place, may we be mindful to seek your agenda, to seek your views, and to surrender and fall to those views, and to keep the gospel first and foremost in our lives, applying it to our, our hurts, applying it to the hurts of others, and publishing it to the lost. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.